This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians this morning, if you would. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be at uh, today. We're continuing our series entitled Magnify Jesus. If you've missed any of the messages so far, you can always get caught up uh, at our website or through the Hui Kala app. Uh, whatever you do, stay caught up on these. If you have the Hui Kala app, which you should, if you click on the podcast, click on Magnify Jesus, click on today's message, uh, there's a button called Fill in Notes, where you can actually type in your notes on your web browser and follow along with all the verses we'll be taking a look at here today. Uh, that's helpful to you. If you want to just grab a sheet of paper and jot some thoughts down as we go through it, that would be amazing as well. Whatever you do, stay caught up. This is message number, get this, message number 40 uh, in our series uh, so far. And good news, we're almost halfway through this second chapter of Philippians uh, in 40 uh, different messages. That's good, right? And so uh, stay encouraged. Uh, we're uh, almost... Uh, a good chunk of the way through the chapter two. So anyways, uh, if you missed anything, you still got some catching up to do, that's okay. Uh, we got plenty of time. We'll be here for a minute. So uh, Philippians chapter two, we're going to start in verse number, uh, I think we'll probably start in verse number 16, no, uh, 15. Actually, verse 14. Let's just back it up one more. There we go. Philippians chapter two, we're going to start in verse number 14. We're going to read through verse number 21 uh, and uh, focus on that this morning. Philippians chapter two, verse number uh, 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon your sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye rejoice, do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus unto you shortly, that I may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. Just to give you a quick refresher, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. It was a church that he had started himself uh, from scratch on his second missionary journey. Uh, he started the church and pastored it for a little while and then moved on. And about 10 years later, about a, a 10, 11 years later, he finds himself in prison uh, under house arrest. And he, instead of wasting his time in prison or counting the days till he gets out, he takes time to write a letter back to the church at Philippi. It was a church that he passed that was near and dear to his heart. He started from scratch. And he writes a letter of encouragement to them, just saying, hey guys, you're doing a, a great job. Keep up the good work. Stay after Jesus. Continue to be all about the gospel. Continue to follow after Jesus, and you'll see good fruit at the end of it. And so we find a, really a letter of encouragement that he writes to this church. But it's interesting that as Paul writes this letter, he finds himself in prison. Uh, he's been put in prison for just doing what he's supposed to do, preach the gospel. Uh, he's been wrongfully accused of some things. Uh, he doesn't know whether he'll actually see freedom ever again or not. And he's not sitting there just biding his time. He's not crossing off numbers and tick marks on the wall until he's released. He wants to take time and invest in other people. Paul really had kind of a different perspective on life than most of us probably would given the same situation. And that's why there's so much that we can learn from the way that Paul lived his life and uh, the way that Paul writes to the church of Philippi in this passage 
entitled today's message, The Unselfish Life. And Paul's focus really wasn't on himself and his current situation and his dire circumstances. Even in chapter one, if you remember, as he wrote to them, he says, guys, you might have heard the things that happened unto me, and don't worry about me. These things have happened because it's actually caused the gospel to go further. That, that Jesus is greater now as a result of the things that have taken place and the things that have happened in my life. And so as he writes to them, really he has kind of a fresh perspective on the way to look at things. And I want to encourage you, first of all, by way of introduction this morning, our life perspective determines the lens in which we view life. Your perspective, the way that you look at life, the way that you view your priorities, the way that you look at your responsibilities will really determine what you get out of life. For example, our world has a perspective, a shift that they have on the way that you should look at a life and the way that you should process things that happen to you. Our world says that more is always better, whether it's more money, a bigger house, a nicer car, it, more is always better. The more status that you can get, the more that you can elevate yourself, the better off you'll be. The more letters that you can get at the end of your name or a title that goes at the beginning of your name will get you the respect and honor of your peers and society. And the more that you can get, the better. And our society's gone so far to say if you have nothing to offer and you don't uh, really have any skills, you don't have any prestige, make up your own and you'll create your own social media following where all you have to do is take pictures and put videos on the internet. And now you too can elevate your own status uh, with no skill or no job whatsoever, just lots of pictures and lots of videos and be catchy and you can elevate your own status. That's the world's way of doing things, but God says that's the opposite. By the world's metrics that it uses, whether it be riches, fame, or status, the Apostle Paul was a loser in every sense of the word. This guy didn't, didn't meet any of the criteria where we would say makes one successful. And if you don't want to go one step further, our Lord Jesus Christ didn't meet the criteria of having a successful following. While Jesus had really thousands of followers at the time, we find him in John chapter 6 where he says, guys, you can't follow me uh, unless you're willing to eat of my blood, uh, eat of my uh, flesh and drink of my blood. You can't follow me unless you want me lock, stock, and barrel. And the Bible says in John chapter 6, verse number 66, from that day forward, many of the disciples left and followed him no more. So Jesus was killing his own following by the thousands and really weeding people out. As Jesus hung there, crucified at the cross, his mother was there, and one of his apostles we know of was there. His, one of his closest apostles had denied him at that time. You want to look at somebody who's successful in their time of need and no one's there? We would say that Jesus Christ didn't meet the criteria for what was successful in the world's eyes. When the apostles even wanted to follow him, he says, hey, uh, we're willing to follow you. Where are we going to go? And Jesus says, I don't know. I don't even really have a place to sleep tonight. I don't have a home. I don't have even a place to lay my head. And so if we were looking at the world's standard of success, Paul was a failure and Jesus Christ was a failure. But if we use a different measuring stick, if we use a different metric to measure success, I, I always liked it when I was in school. I hated school. I wasn't a good student. I'll confess that uh, before you and the Lord. Uh, it's no secret. I didn't enjoy school, but I loved, loved, loved when you would have reports that were due and they would give you what's called the rubric, right? The rubric is, hey, 10% of your grade is based on your introduction. 10% uh, of your grade is based on your thesis statement. 10% of your grade is based on the content of this. 10% you know, of your grade is based on your bibliography. I love that because I know how I'm going to be scored now. God has given us a rubric to follow life by to determine your success or failure in life. 
God's rubric for success doesn't have anything to do with job title, job status, money, uh, the comfort of your living, anything like that. God's rubric for success really just has one category. And here's what it is. I'm going to give it to you. This is the secret to life. Are you ready for it? The glory of God is 100% of your grade. 100%. That's it. And so Paul, when Paul looks at this, he's not duped by what the world has to offer. You see, if, if your goal in life is to have fun, that shapes all of the decisions that you'll ever make for the rest of your life. I'm going to chase what is fun. I'm going to chase what's exciting. And that's why the divorce rate in America is at 50% because the majority of people get into marriage thinking it's just going to be fun. And if all I'm doing is chasing fun in life, when marriage loses its steam and it's no longer fun, I'm going to bounce and find something else that's more fun because fun is my perspective in which I view life. And look, if there is no heaven and there is no hell, there is no God, then we just need to have a blast while we're here because when it's over, it's over. But if there is a God in heaven, if there is a heaven, if there is a hell, if God has expectations and the glory of God is our life, then that should shape every single decision we make going forward. It gives us a perspective shift. And so Paul realized that his life was not about his own glory. His life was not about what he could get for himself. His life wasn't even about his own personal enjoyment. He realized that his life was about the glory of God. Paul understood the idea of stewardship. And we as Bible-believing Christians would ascribe to the idea that we own nothing and our lives are not our own. The idea of stewardship is this, is that everything I have was given to me by God. I think Job said it best when he said, naked I came into this world with nothing. Naked shall I return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I came into this world it's certain that I can carry nothing out of this world. So everything that I have in my life was given to me by God himself. Now the idea of stewardship is this, is that I don't own anything of my own. I just manage it for God. I don't have a dollar to my name that was not given to me by God himself. Therefore, I got to make sure that I handle my money in a way that would please the one who gave it to me. My wife doesn't belong to me. Uh, my wife belongs to the Lord. I just get the opportunity to manage her, to steward her. My children don't belong to me. I just have to steward them for God because they belong to him. The vocation that I have doesn't belong to me. It's an opportunity to steward what God's given me. I don't own a car. Every car that I have belongs to the Lord. My name's on the title, but God gave it to me. I want to manage it for him. The place where I lay my head is not my home. It's the Lord's home given to me by him to use for his glory, that shifts everything in life to a stewardship, not an ownership. I had a, I had a barber in California one time that I'd been witnessing to as I, as I had uh, got my hair cut every time. And if you got any relationship in your life, you should see it as a gospel opportunity to talk about Jesus. And so if I'm going to be stuck in this dude's chair for 25 minutes, he's going to hear about Jesus, guaranteed. I don't care how we're going to get around to it, he's going to hear it. I guarantee you that. And he's, I got a captive audience because he ain't going nowhere. Now, I could shave my head and get me out of there really quick, I guess, but uh, I don't want to do that. But uh, I'm talking to my barber, and we're having a conversation. He said, well, you know, he said, I, w I would call myself a pretty good Christian because I believe in tithing. And I was like, what is tithing? And he says, well, it's 10% of, of giving to the Lord. It's called tithing. And he's like, oh, I didn't know. I thought it was tithing. Tithing is not a thing. Tithing is a thing. 
And I said, so I said, I said it's great. I said, so everything that, that you get in your hands, you give 10% to the Lord. He goes, no, I don't believe in giving God my money at all because it's my money. I was like, you don't understand how this works. I don't give God any of my money because it's my money. He says, here's what I do. I give 10% of my whole self and my whole heart to the Lord. That's my tithe to him. And I'm sitting there going like, dude, you don't even understand how any of this works. And so I explained to him, God doesn't want your 10%. And he goes, really? I go, no, he wants your 100%. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. God doesn't want your scraps. God's not interested in your leftovers. God wants everything that you have because it belongs to him anyways. You don't own anything. He owns everything. That's how this works. And so we had a good conversation about what the tithe actually looks like and why we tithe and why we give to the Lord of our first fruits because God's given to us and how what we give, we don't give God 10% and get to keep 90% for ourselves. We give God what he expects from us and then we manage the rest on his behalf. It's not ours. That's why how I spend God's money is of great importance to me. That's why I don't want to be flippant and go into debt and buy things that I shouldn't buy because it doesn't belong to me anyways. It belongs to the Lord. It's stewardship. So when we begin to look at life as not ownership, as stewardship, it really begins to take a different shift on our perspective as well. Because our goal is not the advancement of self. I'm not trying to build my own platform. I'm not trying to build my own brand. I'm not trying to get people to like me. I'm not trying to build a life that is all about me. My goal is not to get people to like me or for me to be well-liked amongst people. My goal is not to attract people to me that's one of the reasons why I have such an a, a absolute distaste for social media because it's all about, look at me and how great my life is. Don't you wish you were like me? Nobody posts photos of their kids vomiting on the way to school. Nobody posts pictures of their kids where they slam the door to their room and told you that they, they hate your guts. Nobody posts pictures of stuff like that. It's always, oh, look at my kid. You know, they graduated top of their class. First kid to ever do that in the history of our school. I'm so glad. Praise the Lord. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Oh, look at my husband. He's so great. He bought me this coach bag in Starbucks this morning. Uh, thank God for a godly husband. I know that he bought you a coach bag and bought you Starbucks because you guys had a massive fight last night uh, and he's trying to make up for it, you know? You don't post stuff like that. You only see part of it. Why? Because we want to advance self. And here's the thing. You have to understand, if you want to advance yourself, you must downplay all of your weaknesses all of your shortcomings, all of your failures have to be downplayed so that you can elevate self. Or, here's the awesome part. If we can glory in the cross of Christ, my weaknesses can be exposed because I recognize who I am. I'm not trying to put on a show that I'm perfect because I'm not. I'm not trying to say that my family's got it all together because we don't. I'm not trying to say that I don't have sin that I struggle with because I do, but I don't glory in myself. I glory in the cross of Christ. I'm not looking to build a platform for myself. I'm looking for otherwise. Our goal is to glorify God. Our goal is to live for the glory of God. Again, this is the score sheet at the end of your days when you stand before God. Did you glory me with your life? Did my, your life point people to me? Did you do anything of any eternal significance or did you just live for yourself? Angela and I, when we had uh, just got out of the Navy, we started a computer training and consulting company here in, in Honolulu. Uh, our office was at Waterfront Plaza, 500 Alamona Boulevard, where we had our, our office at. We did really well. We did that for about three years uh, before we moved to, to California and we 
God had blessed our business. We were financially independent and, you know, small business owners. I was 25, recently separated out of the military, making six figures and really just buying anything and doing anything. And I remember telling my wife, like, I don't know how much longer we can do this. Just keep making money and like, just keep buying stuff and keep going on vacations. Like, this is going to get old really quick because I was doing what the world says was successful. Be self-employed, make your own schedule, work your own hours, make lots of money, buy lots of stuff. But you know what I realized? I bought a car and it just sat in the garage. And that my, my awesome car that I had bought, I'm still sitting in traffic on H1 with everybody else, hating life. Just in a little bit nicer car. And at the end of the day, it didn't bring any joy or fulfillment. It was fun for a minute, but at the end of the day, it wasn't that much fun. That sure, we would go on vacations and sometimes spend a couple of weeks somewhere that when we always had to come back and go back to work and it was just uh, this cycle of lack of fulfillment, dissatisfaction. I read a great quote several years ago by Stephen Covey, not a Christian, he was a Mormon. But he said, so many times people spend their life climbing the ladder, only get to the top and realize that it's leaned against the wrong building. And you want so badly to find the world's success, to be able to be advancing your career and have the, the accolades and adoration of your peers only to find out there's nothing really there. It's empty once you get there. So there has to be a, a greater goal rather than what you have. And I remember Angela and I, we, were, we had our business and we were, I was feeling very dissatisfied with what uh, I had been given. I'd been told my whole life, work a job that you enjoy, make lots of money, be financially secure, financially independent, set your own hours, work when you want to. That's success. We had found that by 25 years old. And I remember we had gone to church and I heard a pastor preach a message. He talked about the judgment seat of Christ and all of us will stand before God one day and give an account of our life. And I heard that message and I went home that night and I thought to myself, I would be ashamed to stand before God today knowing how I've lived my life. Because I'd say, I chased money, I chased status, I chased success, but I did not seek the Lord. And I'm telling you this, the thought of standing before God empty-handed, pulling my pockets out and having nothing inside to offer the Lord as a result of my life, that thought haunted me on a daily basis. And I thought to myself, I don't want to live a life that doesn't matter. I don't want to live a life that when I die, they just flip the sign on the door and it says closed and they just never open again. That, I don't want to live that kind of life. I want to live a life that matters. I want to live a life with significance. And the only way that you and I can live a life of significance is if we're living to the glory of God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse number 18, uh, believe it or not, at some point we're going to get to Philippians 3, I promise you that, okay? Philippians 3, 18 says this, For many walk of whom I've told you often now, even tell you weeping, that they're the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And Paul's not talking about unsaved, reprobate sinners here. He's talking about Christians who no longer follow after Jesus. They follow after the God of their own belly. Whatever they want, whatever they desire, that's what they chase. And he goes so far. This is how, how harmful it is when Christians are carnal, when Christians chase selfishness, when Christians chase the world, here's how harmful it is. Paul says, and these are the enemies of the cross. These people hurt the name of Jesus. 
And here's the worst thing to ever happen to Christianity is the lie from the devil himself that you can chase the world and you can tack Jesus on to the end of it and it makes it all okay. You can't do it. You gotta pick one or the other. Jesus says no man can serve two masters. Either he'll love one and hate the other or he'll cleave to one and hate the other. You can't serve God and money at the same time, Jesus said. So you gotta pick a side and Jesus says if you're not for me, you're against me. Simple as that. And here's what Revelation chapter 4, verse number 11, it's, it's so funny, so much ink has been spilled throughout human history trying to answer the question, what is the meaning to life? The Bible makes it really clear, Revelation chapter 4, verse number 11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou, the Lord, speaking of Jesus Christ, has created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So you were created, I was created to please Jesus. That's it. So my success and failure in life is not determined on anything other than how much glory did God get from my life? That's it. I was talking to a friend yesterday and I said, when we lived in California, we were serving on staff at a church and we got to a point where we were receiving a comfortable salary and we had bought a house there at the end of a cul-de-sac, about 3,500 square feet, had a three-car garage there, and had room to work on my cars out in the driveway and we had room in the basket backyard. We put a basketball hoop up for our kids. We bought a dog and we were comfortable, I'll tell you. Serving on staff at a church there, but I realized we had failed to, at some point along the way to live by faith. It was very comfortable to live where we were. And so Angela and I asked ourselves the question, how can we maximize the glory of God in our lives? How can we take one step that's a little bit outside of our comfort zone so that God could get more glory from our lives? What can we do to stop living by what we can see and what makes sense on paper? And what can we do to live by faith? And God impressed it upon our hearts. Move to a place where you know no one, where you have no idea how it's gonna work out, preach the gospel, Bring people to Jesus, train new believers, disciple people, and build Jesus' church. And that's, that's what we wound up with. So in July 2013, our family moved to, to Honolulu and set up shop at 1216 Waimanu Street, hung a sign on the front door and, and said, come to Jesus. And for us, I can't think of another place in the world that we could be right now where we could maximize God's glory more than we are right now. And I'm telling you this, if I find it, that's where I'm gonna be. Now, I have no desire to leave who we call. I've asked God to allow me to pastor this church until I'm 62. That'll be 25 years of service here at who we call as a pastor. I, I pray that God would give me that. But I'm telling you this, if there ever comes a point where I'm not living by faith, where I'm not willing to seek God's glory, I've just put it on cruise control and I'm just comfortable, God help me because that's not how Christians are supposed to live. And that's not a pastoral thing, that's a Christian thing. So it's not a matter of like, well, your pastor rules are different for you. No, I'm a child of God and I've, I follow the same guidelines that you do from God's word. How do I please God in my life? So when we take a look at our lives, and Paul was very much living an others-focused life. And Paul recognized that the impact of our life is extended when we invest in other people. Again, if you take a look at verse number 16 in our, our passage here, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul said this, hey guys, I want to hear that you're doing well because if I spent all this time with you guys teaching you and training you to walk with Jesus and spent 10 years praying for you and now I'm sending you this letter 
and you guys don't actually do it. He says, I've, I've worked for nothing. Like all the work that I put in doesn't amount to a hill of beans if you guys aren't actually doing the work that I've called you to do. And so he challenges them. Hey, I've invested my life in you. Make it a good investment so that we can have joy together with one another. It's interesting, if you take a look at verse number 16 again, Paul says, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Every single person in this room and every single person on planet earth, when we take our last breath, we will stand before God. The book of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. What your judgment looks like depends on one thing and one thing only, what have you done with Jesus Christ? So, we deserve to to meet God in judgment. We deserve to pay for our sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what we deserve, what I deserve, what you deserve, is to die and spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. That's what we deserve and that's what would settle the score with God for what we owe Him. Hmm. Worst news ever. But Romans 5, 8 says this, beautiful verse. But God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus died in my place, that I don't have to meet God in judgment because my sin has already been judged on the cross. I was supposed to die, but Jesus died in my place. I was supposed to be punished for my sin, but Jesus was punished instead. I was supposed to die, but Jesus died my death. That's what it means for Jesus to take my spot. And so here's the fact of the matter. Either you can pay for your own sin by being separated from God and going to hell, or you can allow Jesus to pay the price for you. And the only way that you can allow Jesus to pay that price for you is by having faith that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die for your sins, that his sacrifice on the cross was enough for you, and repentance. The word repentance means to change your mind. You have to recognize that you have been wrong and you have sinned against God. And if you would be willing to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that I've broken God's law and deserve to go to hell. And I'm asking God to forgive me. If you believe that in your heart and you confess that with your mouth, the Bible says that you can be saved today. You don't have to join our church. You don't have to become a Baptist. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to get catechized. You don't have to go through a class. You don't have to have anybody pray over you. You just have to say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I'm asking him to forgive me and save me. And you can be saved, boom, just like that. And here's the good news. When you do that, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you until the day that you see Jesus Christ face to face all of the sins and wrong you've ever done in your entire life wiped clean as if they never happened. Your name written in the Lamb's book of life so that when you get to heaven, God's gonna open that book and he's gonna find your name. He's gonna say, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. And you will meet God the day that you die, not in anger, wrath, judgment, and payment, but you will meet God in love and welcome and being brought home to be with your heavenly Father for all of eternity. Choice is totally up to you. But we will meet Jesus Christ one day, either in wrath and judgment or in a day of reckoning or accountability. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, speaking of believers or Christians, that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that all of us one day will stand before God. And the Bible says that our, our life's work will be placed upon a fire. And they said that we need to take 
great care in how we build our life because some people build with wood, hay, and stubble. And when those things are placed upon the fire of judgment in heaven, they're going to burn really quickly. But others build with gold, silver, and precious stone, and that gets laid upon the fire, and it's refined. It's made beautiful. And our life's work is weighed by that fire. So every football game that you watch on TV or every conversation that you have on social media that doesn't amount to a hill of beans, all that is wood, hay, and stubble. Don't build your life around that because it's going to burn just like that the day that you see Jesus. But every time you pray with or pray for a coworker, that's gold, silver, precious stone. Every time you invite somebody to church or share Jesus with somebody, that's gold, silver, precious stone. Every time you offer a word of encouragement to someone, gold, silver, precious stone. Every time you crack God's word and say, God, speak to me through your word today. Gold, silver, precious stone. Take great care on how you build your life. You say, what does that have to do with what we're taking, talking about this morning? Take a look at verse number 16. Paul says, in verse number 16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. You know what the day of Christ is? It's the day of the judgment seat of Christ. That Paul says, the day that I stand before Jesus, I want to know that the investment that I made wasn't wood, hay, and stubble. That the time that I spent with you, investing in you and teaching you the word of God and challenging you to walk with Jesus, that was worthwhile in my life. That I might have joy the day that I see Jesus because of the way that I spent my life with you. So that I can, we can rejoice together and you see, the impact of our life is extended when we invest in the lives of others. Angela and I were telling some friends yesterday about how two people had a massive impact in our lives. Angela and I had been married for probably less than a year. We found a, a Bible preaching church, and we didn't know who they were or what they believed. They just, we just knew that they preached the Bible. And we were excited about that. And there was an assistant pastor of the church, Pat, and uh, his wife, Jane, who really uh, poured into our lives and they would take us to lunch and have us over in their home. We would have them over at our home. We would take them out for dinner and we would just spend a lot of time with them. And I didn't realize at the time, but what they were doing to our life was they were discipling us. We didn't have a curriculum. We didn't have a book where we filled in blanks. They were just teaching us how to live like Christians. And so I, I would ask questions about the Bible to Pat and he would answer those. And Angela would ask Jane questions about being a, a godly mother or a godly woman. And, and Jane would share those things with her. We just learned a lot by watching their life and getting to know them and, and, and just living life with them. I saw the joy that they had in serving Jesus, and I wanted that. Pat and Jane didn't have anything that this world would desire or consider to be successful. They weren't wealthy people. They didn't drive a nice car. They lived in a cramped little uh, apartment in Salt Lake. But they loved Jesus, and I was drawn to that. I wanted that. And as crazy as it could be, at the time we were what the world said successful, we were making money, we had, we had more money than we knew what to do with, and we were so miserable with our life. And here was a couple who didn't have anything by what the world standards, but had joy that just radiated. And I thought, whatever these guys have, I want it. Teach me to have what you have. And they just continued to pour into our lives again and again and again. And I say this with 100% certainty that you're here today because of the grace of God in our lives, but you would not be sitting in the chair you're sitting in if it weren't for Pat and Jane Smith. Pat and Jane Smith now live in, in Missouri. They're probably, I don't know, probably in their mid-70s mid or so at this point. But the investment that they made two decades ago, it's still bringing forth fruit today. 
It's still bringing forth good fruit in my life and in your life. And you're a beneficiary of an investment that a couple of people made and a couple of people 20 years ago. And here's the thing. Pat and Jane didn't have the, the clue that one day me and Angela would go on to pastor a church or start a church. They were just trying to get me and Angela to like show up to church on Sunday and read the Bible. They weren't thinking to themselves, oh, these guys are going to be great Christians one day. They were just being faithful with what God had given them. They weren't concerned for what they could get out of us. They were concerned for what they could put into us. And their life's impact will continue to go on long after they've gone to be with Jesus because of an investment that they made in someone's life. And you and I need to stop thinking about how can I build my life for me? How can I build an empire for myself? How can I build my own platform? And what can I do to invest in the lives of others that will far outlive me? If God is gracious long after all of us are dead and buried somewhere, Hui Kala Baptist Church will continue on preaching the gospel here in this city and it will have a massive impact because we made a decision to stand for truth and to stand for Jesus in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation by the grace of God. Or we can get really comfortable or we can do our own thing, or it can be self-focused, or we can put out a survey next Sunday to say, hey, what do you want to see more of in this church? You want to see a pet-friendly service? We'll do that. Uh, you want to see a, you know, a costume party Sunday? We'll do that too. Hey, let's have a you know, yee-haw Sunday, and we'll all wear overalls and have a barbecue afterwards. You know? We'll all wear straw hats. Let's do that. And we can chase comfort, and we can chase fun, or we can chase the souls of mankind with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you which one has more staying power. Look, church isn't a gimmick. Church isn't a show. I was talking with one of our men this morning before uh, service, and he grew up in a Methodist church, and he said, he said, Pastor, it hurts my heart to see the way that the churches have gone today. Mainline Protestant denominations are turning their back on God and turning their back on God's word. He said, it just hurts to watch. So man, I could, could not agree with you more. People who call themselves Christians but chase after the world, it doesn't work that way. By the very name Christian, it means Christ follower or imitator of Christ. And friend, you cannot be an imitator of Christ if you're chasing the world. It just doesn't go that way. But you won't have a lasting impact, something that matters 100 years from now. Build your life on Jesus Christ. Be a part of something that actually matters. I'm so thankful over the, the course of almost the last eight years, Hui Kala turns eight years old in October. Over the last eight years, we've had literally thousands of people who have been a part of our church that have gone on to serve elsewhere. But the mark of those people still lives on. The investment that they made here at Hui Kala still lives on. There are people that when we sat over there where our super church classroom is right now and we had services over there, there were people that gave to a building that they would never actually sit in because they weren't putting money in a building fund so that they could be more comfortable. They were putting money in a building fund so that the glory of God could go further. And there were people who gave tens of thousands of dollars so that we could move into this building and have uh, AC and nice chairs and, and a comfortable environment. They never sat and worshiped in here one day. And you say, well, that's a bummer because they never got to be a part of the building they were giving to. They weren't giving to a building, they were giving to the glory of God. And God's word went forward and he got the glory for it. 
So again, when we begin to think of how can I invest my life in other people, that's where we get more traction. That's where we get more bang from our buck. You want to use a business term, that's where we get more return on investment when I pour into the lives of other people and stop being so stinking focused on myself. That's why if God has given you children, you should raise up men and women of God out of your own house, not just kids who are pretty good. Kids that love Jesus, kids that want to serve Jesus, kids that want to turn the world upside down for the name of Jesus. Your goal is not to work a job that you kind of like, that's kind of fun. No, you're there Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, because of the glory of God, and he's placed you there in the midst of a bunch of sinners that need to know about Jesus, and you have the opportunity to shine your light bright. That's the idea. While serving self brings short-term happiness, Serving others brings shared, lasting joy. You want to chase your own things, it'll be fun for a minute. You want to go buy a a fancy new car, it's going to be a blast until you get your first car payment notice in the mail. It's going to be really fun until somebody dings it the first time in the parking lot at Walmart. And after a while, after the kids have spilled their milkshakes in the backseat, it's not going to be as much fun anymore. And it's just a car payment that you've got to make. I saw an ad on the internet the other day it's like finance this new car i forget it was a lexus or mercedes or something like that and it was just like i forget what it was it was like almost nine years in financing and i thought to myself i've never wanted to commit to a single car for nine years ever i don't care how nice it is but to make a payment on a car for nine years that's just nuts like who thinks that's a good idea the world does oh you can't have it you can't afford it great we'll we'll, we'll give you money that's not yours so that you can chase status from people But again, when I think to myself, it's not about me or what I can get, but it's about other people. I'm not trying to get what I want because that only lasts a short period of time. It was always funny to me that uh, when I was in the Navy, that on Friday afternoons we would have award ceremonies. Everybody get together and they'd hand out awards and letters of commendation and letters of appreciation and end of tour awards and stuff like that. But then you get your certificate then you go back to work and it's just like, hey man, did you finish that project? No? Okay, you're going to be here till six o'clock tonight and come back in on Monday and do it all over again because you got your award, but that was for the stuff you've done in the past. What are you doing today? <laughs> like, what are you going to do this week to put out for the team? Because the world's accolades and achievements don't have a shelf life. They don't last. They have a really quick expiration date. Whatever you've done is in the past. We're looking for what you can do today. But here's the thing. If I'm just serving self, I'm going to get my pat on the back that doesn't last for very long. I'm going to get my new cool shiny toy that doesn't last for very long. I'm going to get the, the, the newest phone that's the coolest gadget that in six months is going to be replaced by something that's even better and bigger and a longer battery life. Or I can chase something that has no expiration date. And when I live for self, I hit that short window that I got to keep pushing the button. I got to keep getting that dopamine hit of feeling like I'm something. Or I can invest in the lives of others. And with 7.5 billion people on the planet, I'm never going to run out of people to invest in. And that's going to keep me busy for the rest of my life. But if it's just about me, man, I'm going to be on a, a hamster wheel that I can't get off of. But if I'm thinking about how can I invest in this person's life, how can I help this person over here, it, totally different. 
And if you take a look at Paul, uh, when he says in verse number 17, he says, and yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. What Paul's talking about is he says, your life is a sacrifice. The way that you've lived by faith and you follow Jesus has been a sacrifice to the Lord. And he says, I've come alongside of you and I'm offered up on top of that. It's a picture of, uh, in the Old Testament where there would be a sacrificial offering and then there would be a drink offering poured on top of that. Paul's basically saying, hey, what you've done is awesome and I get to be a part of that and it takes my joy to the next level. That when you win, I win. When you walk with Jesus, I get blessed by that. When I see you living the way that God commands, I am thrilled by that. And he goes on in verse number 18, if you take a look at that, he says, but for the same cause also do ye join and rejoice with me. That when something good happens to me, you guys are fired up about it. When you see me using, being used of God, you're excited about what God's doing in my life and we have joy for one another. Now that's the good stuff. Because what good is a selfish victory if you're the only person to celebrate it with? But man, when Ron and his family get blessed, I'm blessed by that. I've been praying for Ron and his family. When he's blessed, that's got to answer in my prayers and answer in Ron's prayers. And we can rejoice together when something good happens in my family. Ron's fired up about it too because he's been praying for my family. That's how this thing works is that we share the joy together. And the great thing about being a part of the family of God and being a part of a solid local church community family like we are is that we weep with those that weep and we rejoice with those that rejoice. And if you've had a bad day, I've had a bad day too. Let's pray about it together. And if you had a good day, I'm going to be fired up about your good day that you have together because <laughs> it's not about me. It's not about what I can get out of it. It's all about me serving you and me being able to live with you to the glory of God. Paul says in, in, again, in verse number 17, for the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. So we're doing this together. You know, the unselfish Christian will always be concerned with the well-being of others. The unselfish Christian will always be thinking about other people, always. I'm not really concerned with me and how this reflects on me. I'm thinking about you and how this affects you. Again, when Angela and I had first been married and we were trying to be in church, I, I, I wouldn't even say we were trying to walk with Jesus. We were just trying to go to church. We would go to church and they would have this fellowship time similar to what we have and supposed to find somebody that you didn't know and say hi to and it was always awkward for me because first of all I'm an introvert by nature second of all if you spend any time around me you know that I'm socially awkward I'm weird uh, and I knew and my my anxiety was heightened by the fact that I don't like talking to people people are going to know that I'm weird and here's what I told my wife she said you need to be more friendly to people people think that you're you don't like them and I say I don't <laughs> I don't like them and if you, here's the thing, I've lived two decades without knowing these people, I can live two more decades and be, still be okay and never know them. I don't, I don't need more people in my life. I don't need more friends in my life. I don't need to get to know other people. I'm fine, let me be. You know why? Because it was about me. This makes me feel awkward. I don't need to know other people. I don't need encouragement. I don't need to talk to people that I don't know about things that I don't care about. I am weird. I am awkward. I, 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 I. And frankly, again, I didn't want to talk to people because I didn't like people. 
because I love myself so much. Epitome of selfish. But one day I realized as I read through the Bible, and, and man, the Bible just blows up every single thing that you think in your mind is okay. I began to read the Bible and I saw how Jesus treated people. And I saw as Jesus spent time with people, sometimes the apostles would try to push people off, say, oh, give them some space, leave them alone. He said, no, 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 I want to talk to them. That when people came to Jesus with problems, he wanted to sit and hear it. That when, peop- when Jesus walked places, people were drawn to him because of his kindness and his love. And I thought to myself, I need that in my life. My wife says that I have a resting angry face. That when I'm not actively smiling, I look like I'm angry all the time. I have these deep set eyes and like a really thick forehead. And so she said, you just look angry when you're not smiling at people. And sometimes like when we have our family photos, you know those people that do like those model poses where they have like this smolder where they're like, they're like not smiling, but they're like looking out and they look really cool. When I do that, I look like I'm furious about to rip somebody's head off, right? So I don't have like the model smolder going on. I have like the, I swear if I get within six inches, you, I'm going to rip your head off. That's my like resting face that I have. And so she says, you have to like look like you're happy. But I'm not happy. But you need to look like it. Okay, fine. And so then I found myself, here's a crazy thing. I prayed as I read the Bible and I said, God, would you change me to love people like Jesus loves people? Because I don't. I I, I don't love people. I don't even like people. I don't want to be around people. But would you change me to, to be like Jesus? And here's the thing you need to be very careful with. Don't pray and ask God to change you if you're not willing to step out and actually be allowed to be changed. So that week, the pastor said, find somebody around you this morning that you don't know. Tell them you're glad they're in church this morning. And for the first time ever, I didn't go to the bathroom. I didn't hide out in the bathroom because that was my go-to. I don't want to talk to people, so I'll go to the bathroom. I'll turn the water on and make it sound like somebody's actually in there doing something, and then I'll leave. And so I walked across, and I said, hey, man, I've seen you for the last six weeks, and I don't even know what your name is. What's your name? I'm Anthony. And we began to talk. And began to find out that he worked down the street from where I worked at. And that we kind of grew up in the same area of the South. And we had, actually kind of had stuff in common. I said, what's your kids' names? These are my kids. I'll introduce you to them afterwards. This is my wife. Have you met my wife yet? Her name's Angela. She's amazing. I don't know why she married me, but she did. Uh, she's awesome. And then I found somebody else. I said, hey, I'm Anthony. I've been coming to church here about six months. And uh, what's your story? And it was awkward. It was weird. But then I realized it's not about me. It's about other people. And some of you, the longest 10 minutes of the church service is the, when we spend time saying, hey, find somebody around that you don't know and say howdy to them this morning. It's the longest period of time for you because it's awkward for you. Let me just help you with this. It's not about you. There's somebody here today that needs a word of encouragement. That if you would look them in the eyeball and say, hey, I'm really glad that you're here today, that would, that would mean the world to them. That if you saw them and you said, hey, it's awesome that you have your kids in church at this young of an age. Keep up the good work. Don't quit. That might be wind in their sails that will carry them for the next six months. Just that one phrase that you have. And that's what I'm talking about, living a life that's unselfish. Be willing to invest in other people. Being concerned about the well-being of others. I love our church because our, our church really epitomizes other people's first. 
Did you know that the people that are hanging out on the sidewalk when you come into church and say, hey, how's it going? Good to see you guys. And hey, do you need help finding a place for your kids? Or do you need a place to park and stuff like that? Did you know that those people always, every single week, miss the music portion of the service? All of them. Because they're out there serving other people. Did you know that probably 50% of our children's ministry workers over there that are watching kids and playing with kids and, and teaching kids the Bible this morning, almost 50% of all of our children's ministry workers do not have children of their own. They're not doing it because it's their rotation or my kids are getting served here, so I guess I should do my part and, and, and pull my shift. These are people who say, I want to love and encourage kids to love Jesus even though I don't have kids of my own. I want to take the burden off of a parent who would have to sit with their kid on a Sunday morning and try to keep them quiet. I want to take the burden off of them so that they can sit and hear about Jesus today. And you know how much we pay our volunteers? <laughs> Nothing, that's why they're called volunteers. They don't get paid to do what they do. They do it because they love Jesus and they love you. So I'm talking about having the idea of how are other people doing? And again, here's the thing. If you're new to this or this is not you, I want to help you with this. You will find the greatest joy in the Christian life by getting to know other Christians. Every single week of the world, I say, we, we sing a song in closing, and I say, hey, have a great week. I'll see you guys next Sunday. And I go wait on the sidewalk until the last person leaves every single Sunday, two services. Did you know that I say, see you next Sunday, and I immediately make a beeline for the front door, and without fail, there's always people who beat me to the front door. Like, can't wait to get out. Don't want to talk to anybody. Don't want to see anybody. They just want to get. And here's the thing. I was that guy, and so I identify with you, and I know who you are, and I'm not upset with you. I'm not mad at you. I don't think you're a terrible human being. I was you. I get, I get it. But here's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. And some of you are like, oh, the kids are hungry. The kids got this. Or I got to have appointment after this. I get it. That's fine. I'm talking about if you're purposely skipping fellowship with other Christians, you're missing out on some of the best parts of being a Christian. And again, you might say, well, I don't need anybody else in my life right now. No, but somebody else needs you in their life. And God put you there for that reason. Don't miss that opportunity. Don't miss the blessing of getting to know other people and serving other people. John says in 3 John chapter number 1, verse number 2, he says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that's in thee, even as thou walkest in truth. And here's what John says, I had no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. <laughs> Best news I've ever gotten in my entire life was to know that you're still walking with Jesus. So here's John has been serving Jesus for decades. He says, the best news that I've ever gotten is that you guys are still after it, still getting it done. And me as your pastor, some of you will, work will move you on or circumstances or family situations will move you on to the mainland somewhere. The greatest joy that I can have as your pastor is to one day look you up and see that you're still walking with Jesus. Because I love you, I care about you. I want to see you make it. I want to see you live a spiritually fruitful life. I want to know that you stood before Jesus one day and got to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, and not stand there empty-handed wishing you had done more. But you know what really kills our usefulness to Christ? What are some things that we need to, to, to take stock of? What are some things that we need to make sure are on our checklist that we don't see in our lives? Otherwise, we're going to limit our usefulness to Christ. Number one, the usefulness to Christ killer is selfishness. <laughs> selfishness ruins everything. Just know that. Because really the root of selfishness is pride and pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Every single time. So selfishness is a usefulness to Christ killer, guaranteed. 
And here's the thing too, what you really want in your life so that God can be glorified, so that other people can be impacted, really what you want at work in your life is the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And Galatians chapter five, verse number 22 and 23 tells us the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The very first one that God lists, and I don't believe that God does anything by coincidence, the very first thing that God lists is love, is the first fruit of the Spirit. I was doing some premarital counseling this past week and asked the question, what's the opposite of love? And most people, without thinking, will say the opposite of love is what? Say it. Hate. Because love is this deep-seated, hardcore, magnetic attraction of two people. That's what love is. And the opposite of that is polarizing, ugly hatred, this deep-seated emotion. But what if love weren't actually emotion that was magnetically drawing two people together? What if love was a choice to love other people and to put them above myself? What if love wasn't really a, a feeling at all, but it was choices that I make and actions that I perform to put other people above me? That's what biblical love is. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it talks nothing whatsoever about feelings, but it talks about being patient, kind, compassionate, caring, thinking the best of other people. That's what love is. Love is not some deep-seated magnetic attraction. That's infatuation. That doesn't last. So you know what the opposite of love is? Selfishness. It's not hatred. If love is you're first 100% of the time, I'm concerned about you, what's best for you, I'm for you, I'm your biggest cheerleader, the opposite of biblical love is me. I'm all about me. I'm my favorite person. I always want to win. I always want to look good. I always want to have my needs met. That's the opposite of love. And that will absolutely, completely and totally obliterate your usefulness to Christ. Because serving Jesus requires love. It requires me to say, Jesus is first. I'm not first. It requires me to say that I'm not the boss. God's the boss. I'm not the master. God is the master. I'm simply the slave. What else kills our usefulness to Christ? Entanglements with the world. Just flat out worldliness. If you're concerned with what's the, the latest trend online and what's cool and what's hip and what will get you satisfaction and you feel like chasing some advanced degree will get you the accolades that you deserve and the recognition that you finally need. You think that by making that next advancement or that next pay grade or getting put in some different office that you're going to automatically have the respect of your peers, please understand you're chasing something that has a limited shelf life. And I can't allow myself to get entangled in the things of this world. That's why I spend zero time a week on social media. That's why I spend very little time skimming news headlines. I don't even read news articles because they're just depressing. <laughs> I, read, I read an article um, this past week. It was in, I think it was Psychology Today. I actually read it because the headline was intriguing to me. It says, debunking the myths on pornography. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And so I, I go to read the article, and the myths of p pornography is that there's something wrong with it, that it's abnormal, that it's harmful in any way, that it causes sexual violence, that it causes sexual dysfunction. I'm thinking to myself, no, no, these are all things that are true, and this article is saying all these things are false, and basically this psychologist came away with the idea that pornography is a gift to, to mankind because there's no real victims. And I think to myself, sit for five minutes in my chair and hear every single marriage has been ravaged by pornography. You can't tell me that there's no victims. And so 
Are we going to adopt what the world says and everything that the, the media puts in front of us? Are we going to take that lock, stock, and barrel as truth? Or are we going to allow God's word to guide our steps? You can't get entrapped and entangled with the world. It's a trap. Next, desire for acceptance. If you want to be popular, if you want to be well-liked by everyone, don't be a Christian. Because Jesus said this, if the world hates you, just know that it hated me first. You're in good company. You want to talk about traps? The Bible says the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. It's a setup. It's a fake. That if you live in fear of what other people think of you, you'll never meet your potential for Christ. So many times we want to feel accepted. We want to feel validated. We want to feel cool. We want to feel like people really like us. Let me help you with this. God has created one of the most incredible organizations in all of the world for a place of unconditional love and acceptance, appreciation for who you are, where you are, and where you're headed as a Christian. And it's called the local church. And if you're here today, you're automatically part of our family and you are loved and accepted here. I don't care what you're going through. I want to help you walk through life together with some of the finest Christians I've ever met in my entire life, and they're found in the local church. And again, you might be so pious and religious like I was who say, well, I don't need a group of people like that. Well, if, if you're on the next level like I thought that I was, we could use Christians like you. So maybe, maybe being a part of a church family, maybe being a part of a small group isn't what you can get out of it. Maybe it's what you can actually put into it. If you're a more mature Christian, you're further down the road than, than, than what we are, then maybe you could help other people get more mature. Or maybe you could just find out that there's some, some holes in your own life that you could probably use some encouragement in. That's how I feel. I don't feel like I've made it as a Christian. I don't feel like I've hit the finish line yet. I, th I still think there's some growth that needs to take place. And so God has created a place for you to be accepted, and it's called the local church. What else kills our usefulness to Christ? Secret sin. Just the, the name secret sin is a misnomer because the Bible says that all things are naked and open before God's eyes. There's no secret sin to God. You might pull the wool over my eyes, but you're not fooling God. And it's best for you to just put whatever you're going with out there in the open and, and confess it, forsake it, repent of it, and move on than to try to hide it. Because the Bible says there's coming a day when all that you've done wrong will be exposed. The Bible says that, that be sure your sin will find you out. It's only a matter of time. You can fake it for months, weeks, maybe even years, but you will eventually be found out. Just put it out in the open. Did you know that, that sin only holds power in your life as long as you keep it in the dark? If I'm trying to keep something hidden from you and I'm terrified that I'll be exposed maybe for being a person that struggles with pride. I'm going to keep that to myself. I'm not going to let you know. And I'm, I'm, I live in fear every single day that you'll find out that I'm a, a proud person or I struggle with pride. But if I confess to you today, I say, hey, I know I'm your pastor, but I struggle with pride every single day. I got to confess my, my pride before the Lord and walk in humility. And that's a struggle for me every single day. What would you say to that? You'd say, yeah, we already knew that. No big shocker. Yeah, we pray for you. That's good. Doesn't have any power, does it? Because it's been exposed. But secret sin is always damaging. We've had family members that have passed away that their secret sin sometimes 10 years later is exposed and it's always hurtful. It's always harmful. My grandmother, when she passed away, we uh, walked through the, the house that her and her, my, my people shared and 
We're going through all my grandmother's stuff and we found a closet full of Sunday school materials that she had used to teach Sunday school at the church that I grew up in. And she played piano and we had some old hymnals that uh, I took some of her hymnals. I still got them in my office. Uh, hymnals that she played in that were, some of them were from the eight, late 1800s. Awesome stuff. One of her Bibles she had, I, I kept that. And so really, really old Bible. But then I thought to myself, one of these days I'm going to die and somebody's going to go through my stuff. What will they find? Is somebody going to unpack a, a, a box in the back of the closet and go, whoa, let's just close that one back up and not open that again? What if somebody had to say, oh, I, I know his information was on his phone somewhere. Let me look through his phone right quick and see if I can find that and then be traumatized by what they find on my phone. Is there some sin from the past that's going to come up and bite me at some point in the future? If so, secret sin is going to hamstring your usefulness to Christ. It's better to just confess your sin, get it out in front of you, and get it out in front of the Lord, repent of it, and move on. When somebody says, hey, I heard this about you. Yeah, I've, I confessed that to the Lord a long time ago, and I've got victory over it. God's been really gracious. Thanks for reminding me of the grace of God. Hey, no power found in that, is there? What else? Kills our usefulness to Christ, carnality. Just flat out, I just want to do my own thing. I just want to live for me. I don't desire the things of the Lord. I don't have a desire for spiritual things. I just want to live a carnal, selfish life. Again, one of the other things to be on the lookout for is a lack of desire for spiritual things. I'm always concerned with people who would rather spend more time with their unsaved friends from work drinking and watching football and talking about women in a lewd way than they would want to hang out with other Christians. Our Bible study, our small group's so lame, we just sit around and talk about prayer requests and the Bible. I want some action. Eww. Don't find value in spiritual things. You don't read your Bible because it's boring to you. You don't want to pray because you feel like nobody's there. Maybe that's a discipleship issue where you just need to grow to be a more mature Christian. Or maybe it's a problem with your appetite. Maybe you're so full of the things of this world that you have no appetite for the things of God. That's a concern. Look out for it. You're going to limit your usefulness to Christ. What else kills our usefulness to Jesus? Love of comfort. I just want the comfortable things of this world. Your potential will God will never be found in your comfort zone. Guaranteed. What God can do through your life will never be found in your comfort zone. It will always be found in the faith zone, which is outside of comfort. Look, when I go to the gym and the workout includes burpees, I hate burpees with every fiber of my being. The gym that I go to on fr every Friday the 13th, it's a, always a full burpee workout. You know, whether it's max burpees in 30 minutes, which is the worst thing in the world, or seven different kinds of burpees that you can do, it's awful. It's just terrible. And so I'm tempted every Friday the 13th to just skip the gym that day, right? Or I can face something that's terrible head on and be better and stronger because of it. So when God leads you to a place of faith, you can either bail and skip it because you don't want your faith to be strengthened or you can step outside of your comfort zone and allow God to meet your faith with his provision. And that's how God works. But if you love your comfort so much, Paul would have never wanted to go to prison, so he's going to do everything he can to avoid going to prison. Stop preaching the gospel and you won't go to prison. Okay, I won't, I won't preach anymore. Because he, if he loved his comfort so much, but he didn't. He loved the glory of God so much, he says, you can't shut me up if you wanted to. So as we look at this passage again, we see where unselfish Christianity should be the norm. Unfortunately, it's normally an anomaly in today. 
while the idea of being a Christian, the whole idea of that is being unselfish, unfortunately, that's not the norm amongst Christians today. And here's the crazy part about it. It wasn't the norm amongst Christians 2,000 years ago either. Because if you look at verse number um, 19 in our passage, but I trust the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus or Timothy to you shortly that I may be of good comfort when I know your state. I'm sending Timothy because I want to know how you're doing. And here's what he says in verse 20. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Hey, of all the guys that I know, in the decade plus that I've been traveling, talking to people about Jesus, of the hundreds and thousands of people that Paul knew at this point, he said, I can think of one guy that I could send that would help you. Just one. Because everybody else is so stinking self-centered and selfish that they don't even care about what Jesus wants. They just want to know what's in it for me. And I worry for Christians when they come to Jesus and they say, well, what does Jesus have to offer me? What can I get out of this? Is Jesus going to like help my marriage or help me be better at work? Or is Jesus going to get me promoted? Or is Jesus going to make me more rich? Or what has Jesus got for me? Oh, friend, you missed the boat. You know what Jesus has for you? Grace, not wrath. Heaven, not hell. Eternal life, not eternal judgment. That's what God offers you. And anything else than that is just the grace of God heaped upon you. The Apostle Paul, you know what he had coming for him? Imprisonment and later execution. That's what he got. But again, if we're grading according to God's grading scale, was Paul successful or unsuccessful? ridiculously, wildly successful, so much that you and I have been helped by the work that God did through him 2,000 years after his death. The Apostle Paul still speaks to me as if I was sitting down talking to a friend because he gave his life for something greater than himself. He lived an unselfish life. Now, how can we have a massive, lasting impact in our lives? My kids know automatically the day that I die, Angela and I have a will put together. There's no big cash windfall coming for them. There's no trust fund set up. There's no property somewhere that they're going to split or no vacation home that they're going to take over. I got a bunch of watches that probably cost less than a couple hundred bucks. I got some pens that I have that are probably less than $100 that, are, that I like to write with, but I don't really have a lot. But what I want to leave my kids is something with a lasting massive impact. I want to leave them with a faith that will change their life and change the world. I want to leave them believing that God's word is real and we live our lives by it. I want to leave a legacy of faith that our family always did hard stuff. We always live by faith because that's where God's greatest glory comes from, from living by faith. That's what I want to leave behind. How do we leave a lasting, massive impact? First of all, walk in humility. It's been said before that it's amazing what can get accomplished if you don't care who gets the credit. I'm not trying to build an empire for myself. I'm trying to, to build a kingdom with Jesus. Next, be willing to be a slave. Again, if Jesus Christ took upon himself the form of a slave, I can too. If God the Father sent God the Son to be a servant, a slave, I can listen to the Father and be his slave. I'm not trying to do my own thing. I'm trying to do Jesus' thing. I'm not trying to do what I think is fun. I'm trying to do what God would have me to do. 
I used to ask teenagers, what do you want to do with your life? What's your plans after high school? I stopped asking that question because it's a terrible question. You know why that question is terrible? Because it says, what do you want to do that would make you happy? I now ask the question, what do you feel like God wants you to do with your life? How do you feel like God would use your life after high school? That's a better question because it reframes it from a different perspective. I really couldn't care less what you want to do that you think would be fun. I mean, I'm interested in your, your, your hobbies and your desires and things like that, but how can God get glory from your life? Tell me that story. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to encourage. That's what I want to support. Next, ensure your lifestyle points people to Jesus. I want to live a life that draws people to Christ, not draws people to me, not draws people to think that I'm totally awesome, but it draws people to think that Jesus is totally awesome. I want to live a life that people can say, hey, look, the Christian life is actually fun. I believe you should have fun in church. I don't believe the church should be a drag. I don't think the church should be uh, something that's super boring. I think that we should be able to laugh and have fun. I believe the Christian life should be totally awesome. And here's the thing about Christians. We can have fun, and guess what? We still remember it the next day. I don't have any shameful photos of me that were taken at a church barbecue, you know? I don't have any embarrassing photos or compromising photos that were taken when I was grilling some steaks with some dude from the church in my backyard. I don't. You know why? Because Christians can still have fun. We don't have to sin to do it. And I want to live a life that people say, that dude, he has a blast in life and he doesn't have to get involved in all the garbage that I do. I want my life to point people to Jesus. Next, I want to invest in the lives of others if even for a moment, even just a split second, I have the opportunity to impact someone's life. That's why for me, every single Sunday at our fellowship time, I try to get around and talk to as many people as I can and I miss some, some people every week and I, I feel terrible about that. But I, I stand on the sidewalk every single Sunday until the last person leaves because I want to talk to you. I want to get to know you. I want to find out what you're going through. I pray for you. If you've attended Hui Kala for more than one time, I pray for you almost every single day. I want to know how I can pray for you better. And I want to have the opportunity to have an impact in your life and let you know you're not alone. I'm with you. I'm for you. I love you. I care about you. I pray for you. We're in this together. I want you to know that. If just for five seconds on the sidewalk before you leave today, I want you to know that. I have a friend who's a pastor, and he uh, had taken his family on a, a rafting trip in Colorado one summer. He said, my girls were, were preteens at the time. He goes, I'll never forget our guide, Corey. He was so much fun. He remembered our girls' names. He was always high-fiving. He was always making jokes. He was always having fun. And he goes, man, that guy just, he, he made my girls feel like a million bucks. And here's a guy who was a, whitewater raft guide in Colorado who's probably either working for minimum wage or living in some cabin on the river in Colorado who 10 years later still remembers the guy's name and the way that he made his girls feel in that moment. You have the opportunity to do that not for some business or vocation but for God. I get to be used of God to impact someone's life even for just for a split second short period of time people have come back to who we call it before it's just like i remember you guys you guys came to church when we were over in the other auditorium over there back where our church was about 18 months old and i remember the impact that they had on me and the encouragement that they were and so don't underestimate how god wants you to encourage other people and again if you're sitting here going like well, i don't care if god uses me that's the problem 
That's the problem of living a selfish life. That's why God wants to use you greater than yourself. Next, develop the heart and the mind of Jesus. Again, for me, the rubber met the road whenever I read through the Bible and I saw that Jesus just loved people and I didn't. And so I asked God, God, would you change me and help me be like Jesus? You know, want to know how Jesus handled stuff? Read the Gospels. You'll see his interactions with people. I wonder how Jesus would deal with somebody that he knew was struggling with sexual sin. Hmm, I don't know. Maybe the woman who was caught in adultery. They got dragged out by her hair in front of Jesus. And they said, here she is, caught in adultery. Do with her. And Jesus says, I can't condemn you, but you can't continue to live like this. Go and sin no more. He probably helped her out and sent her on her way. I want to be like that because I see it in the life of Jesus. Finally, this is really important. Adjust your perspective and expectations as needed. The compass of your heart needs a continual calibration. I need every single day to ask my, my God to fix my heart on his heart. That the things that God delights in, that I would find delight in those things. That the things that break the heart of God would break my heart as well. And that's going to cause a shift in perspective. And when I get sideways and I begin to look at the things that the world has to offer and think, ooh, I really want that. Ooh, I bet I would be happy if I had that. I need to realize true joy is found in living a selfless life. Real joy isn't found in a new car or a new address or fancy vacation. Or Real joy is found in, in living a life that matters, that counts for something. And again, if God should tarry in his coming and God is continually gracious upon our church and we keep our eyes fixed upon him, we will be dead and gone and celebrating in heaven the victories of this life while Hui Kala continues to go on as a lighthouse of the gospel here in the city if we do it the right way. And so that's our hope and prayers to leave something behind that's greater than ourselves, to leave a legacy that matters. But we can't do that if we're living for self. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, none of this mounts to a hill of beans because the day that you take your last breath, you'll meet God in judgment and you're going to spend eternity separated from him. And the people that know Jesus and knew you will mourn for the fact that your soul is in hell for eternity and there's nothing we can do about it. So be saved today. Again, it's not a matter of joining our church or becoming a Baptist or going through any religious practices. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe he's the only way to heaven. I'm willing to ask God today to forgive me of my sins and you can be saved today. But for those of us that are saved, would you stand before God at the end of your life empty-handed saying, well, I had a lot of fun. I made a lot of money. I did a lot of cool stuff. But I didn't really live for you. Or this is my hope and prayer for myself and for you as your pastor. You'll stand before God and say, I did not live a perfect life, but I live with the glory of God in mind every single day and I did my best to honor and glorify you. And we'll wait for a moment and we'll hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for you. My job as your pastor is to prepare you for the day that you'll meet Jesus one day in joy, not judgment. And I want to see you do that. But it requires a perspective shift to live a life that's unselfish. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.